0: CHAPTER Thirteen OF THE PROBLEMS OF PHILOSOPHY by Bertrand Russell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Landon D.C. Elkind at the University of Iowa in Coralville, Iowa. Recorded in Durango, Colorado. CHAPTER Thirteen, KNOWLEDGE, ERROR, AND PROBABLE OPINION The question as to what we mean by truth and falsehood, which we considered in the preceding chapter, is of much less interest than the question as to how we can know what is true and what is false. This question will occupy us in the present chapter. There can be no doubt that some of our beliefs are erroneous. Thus we are led to inquire what certainty we can ever have that such and such a belief is not erroneous. In other words, can we ever know anything at all, or do we merely sometimes by good luck believe what is true? Before we can attack this question, we must, however, first decide what we mean by knowing, and this question is not so easy as might be supposed. At first sight, we might imagine that knowledge could be defined as true belief. When what we believe is true, it might be supposed that we had achieved a knowledge of what we believe. But this would not accord with the way in which the word is commonly used. To take a very trivial instance, if a man believes that the late prime minister's last name began with a B, he believes what is true since the late prime minister was Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman. But if he believes that Mr. Balfour was the late prime minister, he will still believe that the late prime minister's last name began with a B. Yet this belief, though true, would not be thought to constitute knowledge. If a newspaper by an intelligent anticipation announces the result of a battle before any telegram giving the result has been received, it may by good fortune announce what afterwards turns out to be the right result and it may produce belief in some of its less experienced readers but in spite of the truth of their belief they cannot be said to have knowledge thus it is clear that a true belief is not knowledge when it is deduced from a false belief in like manner a true belief cannot be called knowledge when it is deduced by a fallacious process of reasoning, even if the premises from which it is deduced are true. If I know that all Greeks are men, and that Socrates was a man, and I infer that Socrates was a Greek, I cannot be said to know that Socrates was a Greek, because although my premises and my conclusion are true, the conclusion does not follow from the premises but are we to say that nothing is knowledge except what is validly deduced from true premises obviously we cannot say this such a definition is at once too wide and too narrow in the first place it is too wide because it is not enough that our premises should be true they must also be known the man who believes that mr balfour was the late prime minister may proceed to draw valid deductions from the true premise that the late prime minister's name began with a B, but he cannot be said to know the conclusions reached by these deductions. Thus we shall have to amend our definition by saying that knowledge is what is validly deduced from known premises. This, however, is a circular definition. It assumes that we already know what is meant by known premises. It can, therefore, at best, Define one sort of knowledge, the sort we call derivative, as opposed to intuitive knowledge. We may say, derivative knowledge is what is validly deduced from premises known intuitively. In this statement there is no formal defect, but it leaves the definition of intuitive knowledge still to seek. Leaving on one side for the moment the question of intuitive knowledge Let us consider the above suggested definition of derivative knowledge. The chief objection to it is that it unduly limits knowledge. It constantly happens that people entertain a true belief, which has grown up in them because of some piece of intuitive knowledge from which it is capable of being validly inferred, but from which it has not, as a matter of fact, been inferred by any logical process. Take, for example, the beliefs produced by reading. If the newspapers announce the death of the king, we are fairly well justified in believing that the king is dead, since this is the sort of announcement which would not be made if it were false. And we are quite amply justified in believing that the newspaper asserts that the king is dead. But here the intuitive knowledge, upon which our belief is based, is knowledge of the existence of sense data derived from looking at the print which gives the news. This knowledge scarcely rises into consciousness except in a person who cannot read easily. A child may be aware of the shapes of the letters and pass gradually and painfully to a realization of their meaning, but anybody accustomed to reading passes at once to what the letters mean and is not aware except on reflection that he has derived this knowledge from the sense-data called seeing the printed letters. Thus, although a valid inference from the letters to their meaning is possible and could be performed by the reader, it is not in fact performed, since he does not in fact perform any operation which can be called logical inference. Yet it would be absurd to say that the reader does not know that the newspaper announces the king's death. We must, therefore, admit as derivative knowledge whatever is the result of intuitive knowledge, even if by mere association, provided there is a valid logical connection and the person in question could become aware of this connection by reflection. There are, in fact, many ways besides logical inference by which we pass from one belief to another. The passage from the print to its meaning illustrates these ways these ways may be called psychological inference we shall then admit such psychological inference as a means of obtaining derivative knowledge provided there is a discoverable logical inference which runs parallel to the psychological inference this renders our definition of derivative knowledge less precise than we could wish since the word discoverable is vague it does not tell us how much reflection may be needed in order to make the discovery. But in fact knowledge is not a precise conception. It merges into probable opinion, as we shall see more fully in the course of the present chapter. A very precise definition, therefore, should not be sought, since any definition must be more or less misleading. The chief difficulty in regard to knowledge, however, does not arise over derivative knowledge, but over intuitive knowledge. So long as we are dealing with derivative knowledge, we have the test of intuitive knowledge to fall back upon. But in regard to intuitive beliefs, it is by no means easy to discover any criterion by which to distinguish some as true and others as erroneous. In this question it is scarcely possible to reach any very precise result. All our knowledge of truths is infected with some degree of doubt, and a theory which ignored this fact would be plainly wrong. Something may be done, however, to mitigate the difficulties of the question. Our theory of truth, to begin with, supplies the possibility of distinguishing certain truths as self-evident in a sense which ensures infallibility. When a belief is true, we said, there is a corresponding fact, in which the several objects of the belief form a single complex. The belief is said to constitute knowledge of this fact, provided it fulfills those further somewhat vague conditions which we have been considering in the present chapter. But in regard to any fact, besides the knowledge constituted by belief, we may also have the kind of knowledge constituted by perception. Taking this word in its widest possible sense. For example, if you know the hour of the sunset, you can at that hour know the fact that the sun is setting. This is knowledge of the fact by way of knowledge of truths. But you can also, if the weather is fine, look to the west and actually see the setting sun. You then know the same fact by the way of knowledge of things. Thus, in regard to any complex fact, there are theoretically two ways in which it may be known first by means of a judgment in which its several parts are judged to be related as they are in fact related second by means of acquaintance with the complex fact itself which may in a large sense be called perception though it is by no means confined to objects of the senses now it will be observed that the second way of knowing a complex fact, the way of acquaintance, is only possible when there really is such a fact, while the first way, like all judgment, is liable to error. The second way gives us the complex whole, and is therefore only possible when its parts do actually have that relation which makes them combine to form such a complex. The first way, on the contrary, gives us the parts and the relation severally, and demands only the reality of the parts and the relation. The relation may not relate those parts in that way, and yet the judgment may occur. It will be remembered that at the end of chapter 11, we suggested that there might be two kinds of self-evidence, one giving an absolute guarantee of truth, the other only a partial guarantee these two kinds can now be distinguished we may say that a truth is self-evident in the first and most absolute sense when we have acquaintance with the fact which corresponds to the truth when othello believes that desdemona loves cassio the corresponding fact if his belief were true would be desdemona's love for cassio This would be a fact with which no one could have acquaintance except Desdemona. Hence, in the sense of self-evidence that we are considering, the truth that Desdemona loves Cassio, if it were a truth, could only be self-evident to Desdemona. All mental facts and all facts concerning sense data have this same privacy. There is only one person to whom they can be self-evident in our present sense since there is only one person who can be acquainted with the mental things or the sense data concerned. Thus no fact about any particular existing thing can be self-evident to more than one person. On the other hand, facts about universals do not have this privacy. Many minds may be acquainted with the same universals. Hence a relation between universals may be known by acquaintance to many different people. In all cases where we know by acquaintance a complex fact consisting of certain terms and a certain relation, we say that the truth that these terms are so related has the first or absolute kind of self-evidence, and in these cases the judgment that the terms are so related must be true. Thus, this sort of self-evidence is an absolute guarantee of truth. But although this sort of self-evidence is an absolute guarantee of truth, it does not enable us to be absolutely certain, in the case of any given judgment, that the judgment in question is true. Suppose we first perceive the sun shining, which is a complex fact, and thence proceed to make the judgment, the sun is shining. In passing from the perception to the judgment, it is necessary to analyze the given complex fact we have to separate out the sun and shining as constituents of the fact. In this process, it is possible to commit an error. Hence, even where a fact has the first or absolute kind of self-evidence, a judgment believed to correspond to the fact is not absolutely infallible, because it may not really correspond to the fact. But if it does correspond, in the sense explained in the preceding chapter, Then it must be true. The second sort of self evidence will be that which belongs to judgments in the first instance and is not derived from direct perception of a fact as a single complex whole. The second kind of self evidence will have degrees, from the very highest degree down to a bare inclination in favor of the belief. Take, for example, the case of a horse trotting away from us along a hard road. At first, our certainty that we hear the hooves is complete. Gradually, if we listen intently, there comes a moment when we think perhaps it was imagination, or the blind upstairs, or our own heartbeats. At last, we become doubtful whether there was any noise at all. Then we think we no longer hear anything, and at last we know we no longer hear anything. In this process there is a continual gradation of self-evidence from the very highest degree to the least not in the sense data themselves but in the judgments based upon them or again suppose we are comparing two shades of color one blue and one green we can be quite sure they are different shades of color but if the green color is gradually altered to be more and more like the blue becoming first a blue green then a greeny blue, then blue, there will come a moment when we are doubtful whether we can see any difference, and then a moment when we know that we cannot see any difference. The same thing happens in tuning a musical instrument, or in any other case where there is a continuous gradation. Thus, self-evidence of this sort is a matter of degree, and it seems plain that the higher degrees are more to be trusted than the lower degrees. In derivative knowledge, our ultimate premises must have some degree of self-evidence, and so must their connection with the conclusions deduced from them. Take for example a piece of reasoning in geometry. It is not enough that the axioms from which we start should be self-evident. It is necessary also that at each step in the reasoning, the connection of premises and conclusions should be self-evident. In difficult reasoning, this connection has often only a very small degree of self-evidence. Hence, errors of reasoning are not improbable where the difficulty is great. From what has been said, it is evident that, both as regards intuitive knowledge and as regards derivative knowledge, If we assume that intuitive knowledge is trustworthy in proportion to the degree of its self evidence, there will be a gradation in trustworthiness from the existence of noteworthy sense data and the simpler truths of logic and arithmetic, which may be taken as quite certain, down to judgments which seem only just more probable than their opposites. What we firmly believe, if it is true, is called knowledge provided it is either intuitive or inferred, logically or psychologically, from intuitive knowledge from which it follows logically. What we firmly believe, if it is not true, is called error. What we firmly believe, if it is neither knowledge nor error, and also what we believe hesitatingly, because it is, or is derived from, something which has not the highest degree of self-evidence, may be called probable opinion. Thus, the greater part of what would commonly pass as knowledge is more or less probable opinion. In regard to probable opinion, we can derive great assistance from coherence, which we reject it as the definition of truth, but may often use as a criterion. A body of individually probable opinions, if they are mutually coherent, Become more probable than any one of them would be individually. It is in this way that many scientific hypotheses acquire their probability. They fit into a coherent system of probable opinions, and thus become more probable than they would be in isolation. The same thing applies to general philosophical hypotheses. Often in a single case, such hypotheses may seem highly doubtful, while yet, when we consider the order and coherence which they introduce into a mass of probable opinion, they become pretty nearly certain. This applies in particular to such matters as the distinction between dreams and waking life. If our dreams, night after night, were as coherent one with another as our days, we should hardly know whether to believe the dreams or the waking life. As it is, the test of coherence condemns the dreams and confirms the waking life. But this test, though it increases the probability where it is successful, never gives absolute certainty, unless there is certainty already at some point in the coherent system. Thus, the mere organization of probable opinion will never, by itself, transform it into indubitable knowledge. End of chapter 13.